Hey, good morning. Thank you for joining us for a recent sermon from Harvest Baptist Church. I'm Mark Likens. I'm the lead pastor here at Harvest. We're a Bible-believing, gospel-centered, grace-driven church family right here in Natrona Heights, Pennsylvania. And if you'd like to learn more about our ministry, you can visit us on Facebook or at harvestbaptist.info. Now, I hope you enjoyed today's sermon. It's my prayer that this will encourage and equip you in your relationship with God. Well, the title of this series is Confident Before God. And the reason that I'm entitling that is because while there are many themes in 1 John, uh, probably the mega theme of 1 John is that he wants us, God wants us, to be confident, to be sure, uh, to know some things as Christians, to not be Christians who are tossed about just with every wind of doctrine, to not be Christians who um, are skittish and unsure if God loves us or if God hears our prayers or if God's there for us, to not be Christians who are unsure of his security and provision in our lives, but to be confident before God. And I wanted to start this morning by asking you to evaluate your own confidence before God. And we're going to do it on the 10 scale, okay? So 1 to 10, answer the question in your own mind right now, how confident are you before God? You say, Pastor, what do you mean confident before God? I mean, how confident are you that your sins are forgiven? How confident are you that you're saved or that heaven is your home? How confident are you that God would hear your prayers? How confident are you that he loves you? How confident are you that the devil can't have you? How confident are you that you're born of God and that he's made you alive? And I could go on, but those sorts of things, how confident are you one to 10, one being not at all, 10 being absolutely certain, 100%, okay? And what we're gonna do is you're gonna tell me your number out loud. We're all gonna say it together and everyone they won't hear yours because there's so many of us together. But I'm gonna count to three. You don't have to yell it, you just say it. Okay, don't be scared. No one will judge you. No, if you're a one or a five or a 10 or anywhere in between, you just say it out loud. How confident are you before God? On three, ready? One, two, three. All right, I heard some five, I heard a seven, I heard a 10, I heard a three. I heard a lot of different numbers there, okay? Well, let us look at 1 John, and we're gonna start actually at the beginning. If you're new to our church, uh, we have a habit of, generally speaking, preaching through books of the Bible verse by verse. I will do that with 1 John over the next two months. But I'm going to, instead of start at the beginning, I'm going to start at the end. And we're going to look at 1 John 5, verse 13, through the end of the chapter. Now, fair warning, okay? By the time I get done with this sermon, your brain will be tired, okay? And that's not because it'll be longer than usual, at least I hope not. It's not because I'm going to say a, a bunch of big words. It's because there's a lot packed into this. And what John is going to do at the end of this chapter is he is going to say at the end of this book, here are some things that a believer should be certain of. And this really is a recap in many ways of the whole book. And I want us to see the target. I want us to see where we're trying to get at the end of these two months that we would be sure and confident of, and certain of A and B and C and D. And then over the next two months, we'll try to get there. We'll go back and we'll see. But what he's going to do in many ways at the end of the chapter is John is going to give us headlines. Now the articles and all the verbiage is packed into chapter one and chapter two and chapter three. So we'll hit these themes in greater detail later on. 
But we're going to get the headlines, and we're going to see some things that John wants us to be certain of. I would dare say God even wants us to be certain of as Christians, and hopefully over the summer we can get there, and we can be certain of all these things if we're not. So read with me if you would. It's starting in verse number uh, 13. The first certainty that John and God want you to have is that you're saved. It's just to say, you know what? I'm saved. I know that heaven is my home. I know my sins are forgiven. I know that I have eternal life. Here's what he says in verse 13. These things have I written unto you. Now pause. These things have I written unto you. What things? John wrote a lot of things. John wrote a gospel called the Gospel of John. We preached through that, if you remember, in 2019, in the first part of 2020. We did that gospel verse by verse. The Gospel of John is all about believe. The epistle of John, the first one, is all about be sure. The Gospel of John is written to unbelievers to bring them to a point where they would put their faith and trust in Jesus. We'll see in a minute. The epistle of John is written to believers to help believers have confidence and surety about their life. And he says, these things have I written unto you. So these things mean 1 John 1, 1 to 1 John 5, 12. He's talking about all the things in 1 John that preceded this verse. He says, I wrote these things unto you, and listen to the intended audience, to you that believe on the name of the Son of God. I am writing to people who do believe. I am writing to people that have faith. I'm writing to Christians. I'm writing to people that believe on the name of the Son of God. Why? That ye may, and what's the next word, class? Know. That ye may know that you have eternal life. All right, so tell yourself this truth. God wants me to know if I have eternal life or not. He wants me to be sure. And then it says, the next phrase, and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. So John is acutely aware that there may be some people that go through the first five chapters and they read what a Christian would look like, what a Christian would do, how a Christian would act towards other people, what a Christian would believe. And they may come to the conclusion at the end of the book and say, I don't know. I mean, you said I could know if I passed that test or if this or if that, but those things aren't in my life and I don't know. So he says, okay, so if you don't know, I want you to believe. Go ahead and put your faith in Jesus. But his primary goal is to give security and confidence and knowledge and certainty to believers. And the first certainty he wants us to have is that we have eternal life. Now, some have argued, well, I don't know. Doesn't, doesn't that do God a disservice? If we know that our sins are gone, if we know that heaven is our home, if, we, if we're certain of these things, won't it produce moral laziness? Won't it produce in me this like, well, it's, it's, it's under wraps. It's all taken care of. It's a done deal. Why do I need to do anything now? Wouldn't it be better if God could heavy, heavy hang it over our head? Wouldn't it be better if maybe he could use this as kind of a, a cattle prod or something and say, are you going to heaven or not? I don't know. You better try hard. And wouldn't this make us try harder and do better if we didn't know? And the answer to that is no, not at all. If you think that God wants you to be unsure or skittish, 
about if you have eternal life or not, if you're going to heaven or not, if you think that he doesn't want you to know that, you misunderstand the heart of God. God loves you and God wants you to be sure. When you love someone, you want them to be secure in how you feel about them and what you're going to do for them, do you not? So, for example, if you love your children, and I assume that you do if you have children, you want them to be sure and certain and confident in your love and in your provision. So, in my life, when I walk out of the door in the morning to go to work, uh, my kids will, will say bye or ask me where I'm going, but right now, Deacon, my youngest, who's two and a half, uh, he, he always wants to talk to me as I walk out the door, and he says something like this, you go work? I say, yeah, Deacon, I'm going to work. I come with you? No, Deacon, you can't come with me. You come back? Yep, Deacon, I'm coming back, okay? Now, what would you think of me as a father if I looked at Deacon and said, you know what, Deacon, I am going to work, and I don't know if I'm coming back or not, man, you know? I'm, I'm, I may ditch. I may find another family today. And you know what? You better behave, because if you don't behave, I may go to the store and get another kid. I may upgrade you. You'd say, that's the craziest thing ever. That kid needs to be secure in your love. That kid needs to be sure that he's part of the family and nothing's going to separate him. You're not going to give him away or put him up for adoption, that you're going to provide for his needs. He doesn't need to wonder if, it, if, if there's going to be a meal on the table tomorrow. He doesn't need to wonder if there's actually going to be a house over his head tomorrow. He needs that certainty. He needs that security. And you would be right. You think that God, our Father, is any different? that he doesn't want to give us that certainty and that security and that provision and for us to rest and know that we have eternal life. He wants that. Any good husband wants his wife to know and be sure and secure in his love. And in a society where many women know their greatest hurts and pains and disappointments in association to the men in their life, God calls men to step up and to provide and to sacrifice and to provide a secure environment and to put that wife on a pedestal and to serve and to love her. And so when we say that we love our girlfriend, we eventually make them our fiance. We put a rock on the finger. And then eventually, if we really love them, there's most of the time, one of the two says like, prove it, marry me. Will you marry me? And in a culture that's nowadays saying, well, it's just a piece of paper, it doesn't really matter, whatever, we can be committed to each other and not do all that, you know, just sign a document, they misunderstand. But the marriage ceremony is an event where you are saying, because of my love, I will commit to you in an altogether different way in a new and in a profound way, and my love will make you more secure. I will tell you, and I will vow to God, and I will vow to these people for better or worse, for rich or poor, in sickness or health. It doesn't matter. I am in this, ride or die, locked or loaded, thick and thin. We're in this together, and I'm even willing to legally bind myself to you and sign a document that if we are to try to separate ourselves and that's going to create drama that's going to create headache that's going to create a loss of finances i'll legally bind myself to you as well what are we trying to do we're trying to communicate that in my love you're secure right and what god is trying to do in love and we'll see this in first john that that perfect love casts out fear that we love him because he first loved us he's trying to say i love you and i want you to know something i want you to know that heaven's your home. 
I want you to know where you're going when you die. I want you to know that you have eternal life as it puts it because real love grows in the soil of security. You can make somebody behave by threatening them and by coercing them for a short period of time and you may coerce their behavior but you will never captivate their heart. And God isn't after coercing your behavior and twisting your arm behind your back and just trying to make you do more for him. He is trying to win your heart because he wants you to love him with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your mind and all of your strength. That's what he's after. So he provides security that you can know what? Eternal life. Now we'll unpack eternal life as we go through 1 John in greater detail, but suffice it to say that eternal life is not just ongoing existence. There are two words for life in the Greek. Uh, one is where we get our word biology from, and then one is the Greek word zoe. Zoe is used here and always is in eternal life. And zoe speaks about the quality of life. It's not saying that, you know what, hey, I have a future for you, and there's eternal life, and you're just going to take you right now. You're going to take all your pains, all your foibles, all your fears, all of your struggles, and you're just going to live with those for forever. Like, that doesn't sound that appealing, really. It is, you can live with me forever, but there's a whole different quality of life. There is a glorification of the body. There is the, the separation completely from sin. There is, there is heaven. There is eternity. I have eternal life for you. And how do you know this? Well, we'll work through it and through five chapters of 1 John over the next couple months. But the simple answer is that you can know it if you've believed on the name of the Son of God. Who gets to know? that they're going to heaven. Is is that prideful? Is that arrogant? Is that kind of self-promoting? To be like, I'm a 10. I know heaven's my home. Well, not if you understand the gospel. Because the gospel is not, I know this because my name's awesome. The gospel is, I know this because I believed on someone else's name. I believe on the name of the Son of God. I'm trusting in his name. I'm trusting in his account. This uh, summer here, in a couple weeks, my family will take a, I guess you'd call it a vacation. It's a family reunion is what it is. Every two years, my wife's family, the Rule clan, uh, Rule is her maiden name, R-U-H-L, we get together every two years for the Rule reunion, basically. There's three generations. It is um, my father-in-law and mother-in-law. And then their four children, and those four children are all married, so there's uh, eight there, so ten adults in total. And then each of the four children have four children. So Maggie and I have four children, and then her other sibling has four children, and her other sibling has four children, and her other sibling has four children. So there's 16 grandchildren. They're very symmetrical in that way. Uh, I don't know how it all worked out that the four kids all have four kids, and you do the math, the next generation is going to be insane. But we're all going to get together. Uh, this will actually, I'll be here next week, uh, but the two weeks following that, I won't be here. I almost never missed two Sundays in a row. I did once when I had COVID just because I had to, um, <clears throat> but I almost never do that. But the way the calendar fell, it's, it's about eight days to travel there and to be together and then to travel back, but it, it fell on two Sundays. So we'll be there. And I tell you that because people ask me all the time, you know, Pastor, when, when are you going to be out of town? I always tell them, whenever you bring a guest, that's when I'm going to be out of town, you know, every time. But we're going to get together. And my father-in-law, the point of the story is not to notify you that I'll be gone two weeks from now. The point is that my father-in-law has graciously offered to provide our lodging. And 
our lodging is a giant house that will house all 26 of us under one roof. And it's, it's going to be awesome. It really is. And he has chosen out of his goodwill and graciousness to put that house on his account. Now, we will probably communicate with the host and we'll check in and all those sorts of things. But when we check in, we will let that host know, I am here under the account of Tim Rule. I'm not here on my account and I'm not giving you my credit card for incidentals or for damage or something. Like that's not, that's, it's not mine. Don't charge me, right? I am here under his account and now I have the home. Now I have the amenities. Now I have all of this because of him, right? And the idea of heaven, the idea of eternal life for a Christian is that that's not on my account. My moral account will not cover heaven. My moral account will not cover all of the amenities that are associated with faith in Jesus, that only Jesus' account will cover that. And when I believe on the name of the Son of God, what I'm doing is I'm saying, I am trusting in his account and in his name and in his righteousness and in his morality and in what he did, not in myself. Don't charge me because it'll, it'll decline. It's, it's all on him. I trust in him, right? And John says, if you believe on the name of the Son of God, if you have put your faith in him, if you trust in his account, then you can know that you have eternal life. You can rest assured you don't have to pillow your head at night and, and say, I don't know where, where I'm going if I don't wake up. You can know that you have eternal life. He wants that for you. God wants that security for you. Certainty number two is you can be certain that God hears you when you pray. Look at verse number 14. Verse 13, know that you have eternal life. Verse 14, this is the confidence that we have in him. It's very secure language. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we desired of him. You see that? Confidence we have in him. We know he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, we know that we have the petitions that we desire of him. Now, there's a lot I can say about this. First of all is the scope. He says anything we ask of him, whatsoever we desire, like it's all-encompassing. And you're given permission to pray about anything and about everything and to take your requests and your needs to your heavenly Father. And it says that you can know, if, if you know him as Savior, you can know that he hears you if you pray according to his will. You say, all right, isn't that, aren't those kind of counterintuitive? I can know if I pray according to his will. Well, how do I know if I'm praying according to his will? You know, that makes me... That makes me guess. I don't know. Am I praying according to his will? If I'm not, he's not going to hear me? It's very simple. There are two very simple ways to know you're praying according to the will of God. Number one would be just to pray Bible prayers. This is a lost art in most of Christianity, and it's something that I would, it's been revived in my own life, and I would love over the course of time to be revived in our church's life. I've even considered a number of times preaching a series on inspired prayers and just looking at the prayers of Scripture. So you can find prayer, John 17. You can find uh, the model prayer. You can, you can say, Jesus told me to pray, Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Sanctify your name. May thy kingdom come and thy will be done. You can pray that prayer and you can know that's his will. He wants you to pray that. But you can also pray whatever you want. Pray for 
a car, a promotion, health, whatever, as long as you are submitting that to his will. If you can, in good conscience, at the end of that say, Lord, here are my requests. Here's what would make sense to me. Here's, here's what I think I need, and here's what I, what I want, and I'm just, I'm giving it to you. I'm pouring it all out. But Lord, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. Now you've prayed according to his will. Jesus did this, did he not? He prays in the garden. He makes his request, but he's willing to follow it up with, not my will, your will. And if you can submit those petitions to him with the caveat of you're bigger than me and you're wiser than me and you know more than me, so whatever you want, I submit it to you, but here are my requests, you can always pray according to his will. This really is part of the dynamic of praying in the name of Jesus. Part of praying in Jesus' name is that you are saying, this is not my account, this is Jesus' account, I'm resting in his name. But part of praying in his name is understanding that I'm representing the name of Jesus. When a lawyer, let's say you're on trial, if a lawyer goes to trial with you as the, uh, as the client, their job is to represent your name and your interests in court. Their job is to make you look good. Their job is to take, whether you said, I'm aiming for a plea deal, or no, I don't want a plea deal, or their job is to represent your interests. And when they cease to represent your interests, they should cease to be your lawyer because they're no longer operating really in your name. And when we pray in the name of Jesus, it is not the Christian version of abracadabra, right? It's not bibbidi-bobbidi-boo, and this just magically happens. That's not what the name of Jesus is. You're fundamentally saying when you pray in Jesus' name, at least you should be, that I am trying to represent his interests. I, I want what Jesus wants. I, I, whatever he says, whatever, I'm just, I'm just trying to do my best to represent what he would want in my life and in the world, and I'm praying in Jesus' name. So if you pray that way in Jesus' name, or if you pray and you pray, Lord, not my will but thine be done, then you can know, you can know he hears me. Don't pull the, well, I don't know if my prayers are going to get past the ceiling card. If you know Jesus and you're praying in his name truly, he hears you. And what does it say? It's not just that he hears us, but he heeds us. Those petitions grab his heart. Those, those petitions mean something to him. That he'll pay attention to those. That you can know, you can have confidence that there's a heavenly father that wants to hear from you, that wants to talk to you, that you can bring whatsoever, you can bring anything, you can bring it to him. Do you know that? This truth was, according to George Mueller, the old missionary who is famous in Christendom, who's known for being the prayer warrior and seeing so many miracles of God demonstrated in his life and ministry. The truth that gripped Mueller, he said, was Psalm chapter number 65. And it's just, it's, it's five words. It was the five words, O thou that hearest prayer. And Mueller said, when I understood that he legit heard me, that there was a God, and that God would get my request and my petitions and my intercession, that he would hear it, it just made me want to talk to him. When I knew that God would listen to me, that I'm going to talk all day. I'm going to take all my requests to him. Do you have that confidence? 
And think about that. Think about the omniscience and the, and the omnipotence of God that's represented just in this text. We're just saying how, how awesome and faithful and great God was with the choir a minute ago. To think that he can hear us, all of us. I can't hear anything when my three kids make requests of me at the same time. Anyone ever been there? You're sitting at the day, dinner table and like your kids are all talking to you at the same time. You're like, time out. Like they're all talking in English. Like, they're not even different languages or anything. Like, hold on, one at a time, please, because my little finite brain can't comprehend all this, okay? You go, okay, now what do you want? Okay, now what do you want? To think that just a minute ago, hundreds of us all went and we prayed to God at the same time. To think while we're doing that, there's people all over the planet and other languages that are all praying to God at the same time, but he hears all that. Like, that is, that is a a mark in the column of omniscience, that he would be able to do that, that he would be able to respond to all of those requests. How big and how wise is God? But then it says this, and this is under the same umbrella of praying, and this is where your brain's gonna start to get tired, okay? So you're gonna have to hang with me, but there's, it's, there's a lot here. Read verses 16 and 17. Same umbrella, but let's unpack this. If any man see his brother sin, a sin which is not unto death. He shall ask, and he shall give him life for them that sin not unto death. There is a sin unto death, and I don't say that he shall pray for it. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin not unto death. All right? So fundamentally, the main truth this is trying to communicate is that if you have a brother or a sister, uh, another Christian, who falls into sin, you should pray for them. And God, Lord willing, will see fit to restore them and to give them life and to put them back on the right track. And what it's saying is, under the umbrella of prayer, God will hear your uh, petitions that you give to him and your requests, but he'll also hear your intercessions, your prayers on behalf of other people. And if you have a friend or you have a church member or someone who's, who's sinning, who they're away from God, instead of talking to everybody else about them, go talk to God about them and say, God, would you get them back on track? Would you get a hold of their heart? Would you use me somehow? Lord, would you get them back, bring them back, win them back, pray for them? which really was a convicting note for me as I studied this sermon and just trying to think through how often I pray in that specific way for the members of our church. It was a very convicting thought for me. But he, but he prefaces it with this phrase that confuses the fire out of everybody. As long as it's a sin, not unto death. And if there is a sin unto death, he doesn't say don't pray for them, but he says, I'm not saying you should. And he goes on to say there's, there are sins that aren't unto death, even though all sin is unrighteousness. And everyone's left kind of racing their motors on what is a sin unto death versus a sin that's not unto death. What is this talking about? And to really get bogged down in that would be beside the main point of what John's trying to communicate, but I at least have to give you the options and, and take you on a theological journey for a little bit, okay? So there's a lot of options. If you picked up a dozen commentaries and read a dozen commentaries on this verse, you may be more confused at the end of those dozen commentaries than when you started. Like, there's a lot of opinions. We know that John's audience knew this, this had to have been a turn of phrase or a colloquialism that was there that they intuitively knew what sin unto death versus sin not unto death meant, but we're a little bit misty on it. 
But here are the options. I'll give you the three main options of what is a sin unto death. Option number one is, is really the Roman Catholic route, and that is you're talking about mortal sins versus venial sins. Though when he talks about that there's a sin that is not unto death, this would not uh, preclude you from going to heaven. It would not guarantee that you're going to hell, that this is something that you should pray for. Uh, you should even go to a priest and ask him to pray for you, and maybe he'll even give you some sort of penance, and you can go pray yourself. And now you can say you're our fathers or your Hail Marys or those sorts of things. But there are these sins that are unto death. Those are the mortal sins. Those are the, those are the big boys. Those are the heavy hitters. And those sins, you're not going to really pray or this. Like if, if you do those, especially if you die in those sins, then, then you have no chance of going to heaven. You're automatically guaranteed hell. You can't even go purgatory and burn it off. Like you're, that's, that's a mortal sin. And there's a lot of problems with that. Uh, the first problem is that, that the whole system really, you have a vague foundation that's I can maybe kind of see how you're getting that, but then you get to build the scaffolding off of the vague foundation that is not there at all. And you begin to define what is a mortal sin versus what is a venial sin, and all these things that, that, that it just doesn't do, the text doesn't do. You also run into problems of confessing this to a priest, whereas it doesn't say you need to go to a priest, it just says if any man, look, if you see your brother, pray for them. So there's a, there's a lot of problems that, that poses, but the primary problem is the context of 1 John. That it leaves you, if that's the case, man, am I really going to heaven or not? I don't know. Did I, did I do a mortal sin? Did I not do a mortal sin? You know, did I confess it enough time? It leaves you skittish and wondering, whereas the whole point of the book is to bolster confidence and to give you certainty that you know that you're going to heaven. So option number two is the simplest option. I, I don't lean this way, but it is an option and it is the simplest thing, is that he's referencing a sin that would literally lead someone to die physically. And you have examples of this in the Bible. Achan steals, plunders, and that sin led to his death. Ananias and Sapphira lie against the Holy Spirit, and Ananias and Sapphira die because of it. 1 Corinthians 11 tells you there's people who are taking communion in a way that is unworthily. They're not doing it charitably out of love. Uh, they're, they're not doing it with the right heart and intentions. And 1 Corinthians 11 says that some of those people were sick because of it, and some of them even slept or died because of it. So there's biblical warrant for sin leading to people's death, and it could just be talking about, hey, they died, and that was, that was really egregious, and like, uh, don't really need to pray for them now. That's the simplest option. The third option, which isn't necessarily the simplest, but it's where I lean, is that this is uh, along the same lines of blaspheming the Holy Spirit. So this will all make sense in a minute. Hang with me. Uh, there is, a, in Matthew and in Mark, there's the mention of blaspheming the Holy Spirit, and it has language that is such that this person is not going to come back from this. This person is, um, there's, there's, they're not going to repent of this. That This is the unpardonable or unforgivable sin. Now, the context on that is that Jesus is doing miracles and Jesus is teaching and he has opponents, but the opponents go so far after hearing, after witnessing, after observing, not only do they reject Jesus, but they begin to be super antagonistic and then they begin to, 
say what the Holy Spirit is doing in power, that is via the power of Beelzebub. And they begin to say that the work of God is actually the work of the devil. And they, they become so hardened and entrenched in that, that Jesus' words are that they're not coming back from that. And they're, they're kind of a lost cause at this point. You would have something very similar in Romans 1. I'm not going to turn there for sake of time, but Romans 1 talks about people who uh, hold the knowledge of God and they hold the truth in unrighteousness. And they know God, but they don't glorify Him as God. And they begin to make these idols to substitute for God. And they begin to do things that they know are wrong, but they begin to do them. And not only do they do them, but they have pleasure in them that do them. And eventually God, it says, the word is wrath, that God in his wrath doesn't smite them or doesn't throw a lightning bolt at them, but God in his wrath says, you know what? Fine. Have it your way. I'm done. I will leave you to your sin. I will leave you to you chasing that, you have heard the truth, you know the truth, you know who I am, you know that this is wrong, and you just, you so hardened yourself that you will not listen, and I'm, my hands are off. And that actually is the wrath of God in their life. And this is, I think this is what John is connotating. That he, he's trying to talk about, there's kind of two categories of sin. There's sins that, that we all do, and we need to repent and we need to come back. But there are times where people have so resolved themselves. It's not the action. It's not the specific sin they're doing so much as it is their heart. And there is this bitter, hardened resistance to the truth of God revealed in Jesus Christ. And they have said no and no and hardened and hardened. And they're at a point where I don't even know if you should, if you should pray for them anymore. Like they're just, they're done. And this makes sense in light of 1 John because as we work through the book, you'll see that it begins to talk about these people who have left God, who have left the church, who are, he calls them antichrist. These people who are now spinning narratives that are completely anti-Jesus and trying to lead people away and he probably has them in mind. That pray for your brothers and sisters that fall into sin, but there are some people that become apostate and they, they are so hardened and resistant to God that he's trying to say, I don't really have them in mind. They're gone. They're against us and they're anti-Christ. Now, here's what I'm not recommending. I'm not recommending that you become the judge and jury and you figure out who sins unto death and who sins not unto death and you sort it all out, okay? A lot of that's gonna be above your pay grade but what he's trying to communicate is there are times where people are just, they're just hardened against Jesus. He doesn't say don't pray for them. He doesn't forbid it. But he does say clearly, uh, I don't know. Maybe you should. I'm not, I'm not saying don't, but I'm not saying do either. But your brothers and sisters that are struggling against their sin, pray for them. Help them. Support them. Now, big picture. Let's zoom out. Big picture He's trying to get you confidence. He's trying to get you knowledge. And he's trying to say, no. Know that God hears you when you make your request. Know that God hears you when you intercede on behalf of somebody else. Know that God listens to you. Be sure of that. Certainty number three. He tells you, I want you to be sure that the devil and sin can't have me. This is verse number 18. All hustle. We're almost to the end of the chapter. We know that whosoever is born of God sinneth not. See that confidence again? We know that whosoever is born of God sinneth not. Now, 
We will elaborate on this in detail when we get to 1 John chapter number 3. I'm not going to do that this morning because we'll get there eventually. This is a recap of 1 John 3. And you could think at first glance when you read this, if, if I know God, I never sin. Like, I'm out. I guess I don't know God then because, like, I sin sometimes, right? And that's not what he's saying. Because he's going to tell us in 1 John 1, if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin. He's going to tell us that we have an advocate with the Father when we sin, Jesus Christ the righteous. He just said, if you have a brother in Jesus who sins, pray for them, right? So he's not saying you will never have a single sin in your life if you know Jesus. But he will say very clearly, and we'll unpack it in 1 John 3 when time's right. He is saying that you will not, if you know Jesus, have unbroken, continual patterns of sin that you do not struggle against. You, sin will not have such a grip on you that it is never loose, that, is, that you never struggle against it, that you never repent, that if you truly know Jesus, then sin is not going to get the better of you when it's all said and done. You may go 10 rounds with sin, but at the end of the day, you're going to knock it out. There's, there's not going to be, well, you may have addictions, you may have sin that easily besets you, you may, you may have weight, you may have all that in your life, but you will continue to struggle and work and the Holy Spirit will convict you and that sin won't be nearly as fun as it used to be anymore and you'll struggle against it. There won't be these continual unbroken patterns of sin. But then he goes on to say, but he that is begotten of God keepeth himself and this is so awesome, that wicked one toucheth him not. The wicked one doesn't touch him. We know that we're of God but we also know that the whole world lies in wickedness. Now, this is about as anti-cultural as it can possibly get. But what he's saying is, number one, I know that sin, it's not going to have me when it's all said and done. A just man falls seven times and he gets up again. And I may fall seven times, but I'm going to get back up again if I know Jesus. I'm going to keep persisting. I'm going to keep pursuing. And you think about falling seven times, like, that's a lot. Like if you went to the mills and you were walking around the mills and someone's in front of you and they fell. I don't know what you'd do. Maybe you'd help them. Maybe you'd laugh. I'm not sure. And then they got back up and they walked just a few more feet and then they fell again. You'd be like, what's going on? And then they fell again a third time. You'd think they're either playing a prank on me or something's wrong. And if they fell seven times while they're walking through the mall, you'd be like, there's an issue, Right? When a just man falls seven times, there's an issue there, right? That, like, that's not a good thing. But the just man gets back up again, and sin doesn't have a hold on him. And you'll keep fighting. You'll keep breaking the pattern. You'll keep pursuing the Lord Jesus and killing off the sin in your life. He says, that'll happen, but he says the wicked one won't touch him. So this is very countercultural on, on a lot of levels. Number one, it's telling you there's a wicked one, there's a devil. Just the truth that there is a spiritual world and there, Satan is real. But it's also saying that the world lies in wickedness. Those that don't know God, there's two boats. There's no middle ground. There's no straddle the fence. You lie in wickedness in the world or you belong to God, you have the truth, one or the other, unequivocally. But he says, have confidence. If you know God, if you're saved, he won't touch you. In the same way that he wouldn't touch Job. Satan could get at Job, but Job belonged to God and he couldn't have full access. He wasn't going to be in his hand. That you will, you will be in the hand of God. You are secure 
from sin. You are secure from Satan. He's trying to say, if you belong to God, then be sure and have confidence and let that be a breath of fresh air to you. Let that be a warm blanket to snuggle with. Let that be a cool pillow for your head. Know that God has you and Satan can't get you. But then he says, lastly, number four. He says, be certain that Jesus has made me alive. Verse number 20. There's a whole lot of knowing here. This is confident language. We know that the Son of God has come. And he's given us an understanding, or he has illuminated us. He has spiritually turned the lights on. He has quickened us, is the Bible word. He has made us alive. We know that he's given this to us, that we may know him that is true. We are in him that is true. Even his Son, Jesus Christ, this is the true God. This is eternal life. You see that? He's saying, I know that Jesus came in the flesh. I know that God has made me alive. He's given me understanding. I know that this is true, that God is true. I know that Jesus is true. I know this is the true God, the real God, the real deal, the real thing. I know this. I have confidence in this. This is true. Now, you are not going to get this from Hollywood. You are not going to get this from the Joe Rogan experience. You are not going to get this from the public school educational system or your college university. You're not going to get that. You're going to get the opposite of that. You're going to get, how can you really know? I mean, I don't even think there is a God, but let's say that there is. How can you really know? And I mean, don't say that like it's true, true. I mean, it could be true for you. That's true for you and this is true for me, Right? And that, that's your truth, and this is my truth, and we'll just, we'll just each have our own truth. Meanwhile, they're contradictory to each other. And you know what? All the roads, they kind of lead up the same path, and John gets to the end of his book, and he says, let me tell you something. I know that I have the true, the real God. I know that Jesus came. I know I put my trust in him. I know that this is real. I know what he's done in my life. I know this to be true, and I will stand here confidently because of what Jesus has done. This is a moment for him where he is saying, be sure, be certain, be bold, be confident. Even if they ridicule you, even if they don't think that you should be confident, be it. And last verse, so little children, that's how John likes to refer to his audience. It's very warm and very fatherly. Keep yourselves from idols. Amen. That's the end. He says, so what does this mean? This means keep yourself away from idolatry that substitutes for God. Don't exchange something for God. Don't put something else in his place. Don't chase that sin. When you see a brother fall into sin, pray for them. But you know that sin, if you know Jesus, it's, it's not going to win the, the, the final victory. But you pray for yourself. Work hard against it. Stay away from idols. Stay away from what would take your heart and your allegiances from God. Get clear of it. Live for him. Love him. And here's the point. John is saying, you can know this. You can know heaven's your home. You can know God hears you when you pray. You can know that sin and the devil, they can't have you. You can know that Jesus made you alive. You say, okay, but how do I know? How do I know? Is that just because God wants me to? Is that just because... I mean, you mentioned if I put my faith in Jesus, 
how do I know if my faith in Jesus was legitimate? Ever, ever been down this road? How do I know if I really put my faith in Jesus? I mean, I prayed a prayer, but like, did I mean it sincerely? I think I did. It was a long time ago. I don't know if I did. Did it, I mean, did I pray the right words? I mean, I know a lot now. Did I know enough then? Did I really understand it then? You ever do that where you play that game? And you start to doubt and you start to question, okay, I can know if I put my faith, but did I really put my faith? And did I, did I, I don't know. And that's what we're going to walk through for the next two months. Because he will, he, John will never tell you, well, did you pray a prayer? Well, did you genuinely mean the prayer? Did you do it with sincerity? He, he never says that. I'm not saying don't pray a prayer or pray a sinner's prayer or pray it genuinely. I'm not saying that. But what he'll begin to do is he will give you real, tangible tests that you can apply to yourself. Tests on what you believe or don't believe. Tests on what you do or don't do. And tests on even how you love other people. And he will say, if you pass these series of tests, then you pass the big test. You're his. You have eternal life. You, you can rest assured of that. You can know he hears you. You can have full 10 on a 10 scale confidence. But if you can't pass the test, then put your faith in him and get saved. And my goal is to address two audiences, and I'm done. Through the course of the summer, my goal is to address those of you that are certain, but you should be troubled. You're certain, but for bad reasons. Because grandma told you you prayed a prayer. Or the VBS worker said, I really meant it. If you're certain, but for bad reasons, I want to trouble you. But some of you are troubled, and you should be certain. And I want you to stop it. I want you to take all that doubt and all that fear and all that angst and all that worry and toss it out the window and be confident before God. And hopefully, no matter which boat you're in, by the time we get to the end of this, we can all be 10 on a 10 scale confident before God. Pray with me if you would. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to be here in your house. We thank you for the opportunity to study your word. And Lord, I pray that through this series that some idols would topple over that you would identify to us idols that we have not kept ourselves from and that they would be thrown down. Lord, I pray that you would bring us from uncertainty and doubt to faith and confidence. And Lord, I pray that you would work. Lord, we want to be people that are obedient with our lives. We want to be people that worship you from the heart. We want to be people that have lives that count for you in our daily routines, in our in our normal rhythms, but also in the big moments. We want to honor you. And Lord, we thank you for being a God that is loving, that wants to produce security. And I pray that it would happen. I pray that for those that know you as Savior, that they would know that they know that they know, and that they would not live in uncertainty. And I pray for those that do not know you as Savior, who haven't truly believed on your name, that they would put their faith and their trust in you and that they would know you by the time we're done with this book. Lord, we trust you with these things. And we do it in Jesus' name. I want you to remain in a spirit of prayer. And if you are a Christian, you know Jesus as your Savior. Thank him for loving you enough to give you security. Thank him that you're in his hand, that the devil can't get you. That sin's not going to get the last laugh. Thank him for hearing and answering prayer. 
if there's already idols that come to mind that you need to topple over, it could be things that are good that you've just made idolatrous, your career or your family or whatever it is. It could be things that you know they're sinful. You know you shouldn't fill your weekend with that stuff and then come to church because it's wrong. Then confess it now. Don't wait three weeks into the series. Do it now. Run away from it. If you're in the room and you don't know Jesus as your Savior, I hope that right here, right now, you put your faith and trust in Him. You can stop resting in your account and rest in His account instead, right this moment. He loves you. He died for you. He rose from the dead. And He will forgive you. He'll give you a home in heaven. He'll give you eternal life. If you've never called out to Him in faith, maybe do that right here, right now. Just say, Jesus. Jesus, I know there's sin in my life. And I know I've been trying to solve it in all the wrong ways. And Jesus, right now I tell you that I'm believing on your name. I believe you died for my sins. I believe you rose from the dead. And I put my faith in you. Not my moral account, but yours. I'm trusting in you and in you alone. Save me. Clean me. Give me heaven. That's, that's not a magic script, but if you'll pray something like that, and you'll mean it, you'll really put your faith in him. And he promises you that he will save you, and you can be certain that he did. Lord, one more time, we come with hearts of gratitude. Lord, I'm not going to pray for individual people specifically by name right now, but I do pray for those that are, they know you, they even love you, but they are backslidden. They're away from you right now. They're sinning their life. Maybe they're sitting right here in this room and they know that they're backslidden even though they're here in church. Lord, I pray that out of love, you would show them how much you care for them and how much you want for them, that you want to put them on a path that leads to life that is right. And I pray that they would repent, that they would turn from their sins, that they would turn to you and that they would pursue you. Lord, I pray that we would all be more like you when we get to the end of the summer, that we would pursue you more, that we would love you more, that we would have some sin that is killed off in our life just a little bit more. Change us into your image and into your likeness. Jesus, it's in your name we pray and we pray. Amen. Well, church, I love you. I want to thank you for being here this morning. I want to thank you for hanging with me. I know that there was a, there's, there's a, a lot tangled up in that text, and we'll begin to take those major themes and unpack them a little by little as we go through this book. But right now, we're going to end with a video to tell you a few things that are going on. So go ahead, watch this, and when it's done, you can be dismissed. Good morning and thank you for joining us today. We're glad you're here. One of our pastors would love to meet you at our welcome desk after the service. And if you haven't already received it, we have a small gift and a Bible for you too. We'd like to take a minute and give you a bird's eye view of opportunities happening on our campus this summer. At Kid City, we believe that all children can learn to be followers of Christ. By teaching kids to know and love God at a young age, 
we're equipping them with a great foundation for the rest of their lives. During our first service, we offer Sunday school for children ages three years through sixth grade. During these classes, teachers emphasize prayer and facilitate group discussion as they create an environment for discipleship. During our second service, our children gather for junior church, where they are encouraged to actively participate and find joy in worshiping and serving the Lord together. Our Awana program has come to a close for the 21-22 school year, and we're about to launch our new Wednesday night summer program entitled Happy Campers, Adventure with God Awaits in the Great Outdoors. During this time, our kids will enjoy skits, games, memory verse learning time, and Bible lessons. Happy Campers will run from June 15th through August 17th. Our check-in station will open at 6.45 p.m. and the program will go from 7 until 8.15. No registration is necessary. Teenagers, you can join us Sunday mornings for Bible study during the first service and Wednesday evenings for crazy fun, adventurous games, and Bible teaching. This summer, we're looking for people of all ages to be a part of an evangelism team. Throughout the summer, we will go to community events such as Mingle on Main in Saxonburg, Fridays on 5th in New Kensington, and even Pittsburgh Pirates home games to distribute gospel tracts. If you're willing and able to hand out a tract and possibly engage in gospel conversation, then you are a fit for this outreach. Please join us on Thursday, June 16th from 5 to 8 p.m. as we take the gospel to Saxonburg for their community event, Mingle on Main. If you're unable to make it to Mingle on Main, how about the following evening, Friday, June 17th? A team of us are planning to go to PNC Park from 6 to 7.30 to hand out gospel tracts to those going to the Pittsburgh Pirates game. If you're interested or you'd like more information, contact the church office. Vacation Bible School is right around the corner. Join us July 11th through the 15th from 9 a.m. to 12 p.m where kids can find themselves on a trip they'll never forget as they explore the Australian outback and unearth the value and wonder that all life is created by God and for God. Kids will enjoy delicious food and will also enjoy great games, crafts, and maybe even a science experiment or two. This is a VBS experience your kids won't wanna miss. Registration is now open through our website for children ages four years through sixth grade. You can also sign up online to be a volunteer. We're very excited about what the Lord will do in the hearts of our kids, as well as in our hearts as we serve Him together. We want to thank you again for joining us for worship this morning. If you decided to accept Christ today, we think that is great news. Stop at our welcome desk and let one of our pastors know so we can partner with you as you begin your relationship with Jesus. You can connect with us throughout the week at harvestbaptist.info, Facebook, and on Instagram. We hope that the remainder of the service is an encouragement to you.